Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that Sport Dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code Meat Eater. So go to www.sportdog.com slash meat eater to learn more. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in our capital, Helena, Montana. Each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Scott personally calls every customer who buys one of his rods. Head to montanacastingco.com and use code MEATEATER20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Pat Durkin and Doug Dern. I guess I like you should be cousins. Almost. We Durkin sure don't and, look Durkin like we should Dern. be cousins. No, you know, I can see a little bit. A lot of skin up on top of your head. <laughs> I was going to say, the bald guys are on one side of the room. The guys with hair are on the other side. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't like to get close to the bald guys. Man. <laughs> afraid of the rub I, off. I think you're safe, Steve. I'm really not. My wife doesn't think that I am. No, you're safe. Really? Well, I, my I, grandfather, my grandpappy, Glenn Coral who was an avid musky angler. I don't even want to tell you his one of his tricks, the musky tricks he told me about, but I, I will tell you. It's from a bygone era. He was telling me when I was a little boy, he liked to fish musky and he liked to fish crappies. He was telling me a good way to catch muskies is, oh, it's just kind of terrible. <laughs> Try to think of how to bring it up. I think just say it, man. Okay. Glenn Coral, my Patern- my maternal grandfather, who was a farmer and then went on to be to work for a fire department, um, used to fish muskies by basically harness rigging chipmunks, as he explained it to me. <laughs> harness rigging chipmunks, which he would like deliver out into the water by canoe, wow. and then and then go back and fish it. Yeah. Do you remember what his success I'd like to ask an animal rights ethicist about that. (laughs) Well, and then, too, you think about when we were kids, we didn't know it was illegal, but we used to lip hook leopard frogs. 
Oh, every kid does that. Yeah. I don't and, know if they still do, but they were doing that when yeah. I was a they, and, they mean and we was doing that when I was a kid. <laughs> and so you don't think, think I ever caught a fish that way though. Oh, I, I did. Oh, did you? And even I caught, I do that night. I thought I was gonna catch these big largemouth bass. And what I caught was big bullheads. I mean, oh, tr- trophy bullheads. Really? You know, like 14, 15. Trophy bullheads. Trophy bullheads. bullheads. Are they hanging on your wall next year? <laughs> next year, no. 32 deer heads you got hanging in your house? No, but, but we ate them all and they, they, they were good. Yeah. Uh, Point being, Glenn, my paternal, yeah. my maternal grandfather was balder than you guys. Well, maybe not as bald as Doug, <laughs> but bald. And, uh, Supposedly, like you catch it, right? You catch it from your maternal grandpa. Right. Yeah. My wife thinks I'm thinning out. No. I, My barber I, doesn't. It, you can tell your wife, for me, that when I was in boot camp at age 19, my hair was already lighter than yours as far as thickness. When they shaved my head off and then I came back, my hair was about like, like yours is now. And that's when I was 19. By the time I was 29, it was going fast. Yeah. Yeah. No, oh, yeah. Now, my bro, uh, you know, I got brothers who like staggered out ahead of me a year and a half, 18 months out, and then 18 more months out. So I look at their heads a lot. <laughs> it changed, like, their heads change, man. Danny's a little. Thin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Got those widow speaks. Um, you know, one quick question. The guy wrote in, a UFO researcher just wrote in. Is that a real thing? Someone, he's claiming to be one? Yeah, but I mean, but, like, to say you're like an ex-researcher, like how hard is it to prove it? He didn't like, he didn't have, I don't know that he has, like if you walked into his house, would he have like the little degrees hanging on the wall? <laughs> but I think that when I see that, I'm like, I think that you could be, I think that you could be a, um, I'm guessing he's a hobbyist. There's not a lot of credentials that go along. Yeah, with because I think that you could, if you were someone who was, like if you were an astronomer, for instance, and you were curious about life on other planets, I don't think you'd write dudes like me to say, hey, man, I'm a UFO researcher. And as part of my research, I thought I'd ask you fellas who spend a lot of time out in the woods if you've seen any evidence lately which is what this email was. Yeah. Pat? Um, <clears throat> I, wrote, I actually wrote a, part of a chapter of a book one time on this guy who runs trail cameras up here, north of here in Buffalo County. And his trail cameras picked up a UFO. Um, oh, can, can you stop for a minute? Yeah. When you say that, do you use it like UFO, like lowercase or UFO, like uppercase? Uppercase. Uh, abbreviation. No, no, no. What I mean by that is... If you see something flying and you can't identify oh. it, that's a, that's a UFO. I, I think of that as a UFO lowercase. When someone says, like, I saw a, a, a UFO, and they mean by that, they mean not that they were not able to identify it, but they mean that it was a thing carrying oh. aliens around. Definitely I think uppercase. of that as like an uppercase. 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 So uppercase. you know a fellow that caught an uppercase UFO, Definitely. like an alien spacecraft on his trail cam. Definitely. Yeah, I wrote about it. I can even, I'll have to send you the, uh, a copy of it. Well, just just tell me. Um, basically, it was a he had this great picture of a, a doll in front of his trail camera. Then in the back, way in the back, you can see in the distance a V-shaped object, and that V-shaped object moved in those in those um, pictures. Okay. He, had, he had a series of pictures, and then um, coincidentally, about in that same time period, about a week before, or a week after, I can't remember the specifics. There there were reports by other people in that area seeing this. Uh, 
it's like a wedge-shaped object that would, that would pick up and haul ass out of there. Okay. And this one guy um, talked the story about these guys came flying down the road, scared all their mind. They'd been driving and had seen this thing. And then Tom was checking his trail cameras and Tom checks his trail cameras on, on his computer. He, he watches those pictures and he's always seeing stuff and he noticed this object back there and it was right about dawn. And this thing actually did move in, in those pictures where you could see it's not something that just was a speck that showed up in the same spot. It was actually something in, in movement. Pat, do you believe that... Um, I'm, not a, don't, don't, I'm not asking you if you think that there is life on other planets. Okay? Okay. My brother was recently explaining to me that the number of other planets is... It's a... Imagine a one with, I think, something like 17 or 20 zeros after it. Hmm. He's a statistician. And he says, with that many planets, there is one where there is a eight-foot-tall furry person who is a smuggler in a spaceship. Like, there's that many planets. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I buy that. But I'm not asking if you think there's life on other planets. Do you think that right now there are a there are people from other planets in amongst us flying around in ships? Or do you think that he thinks that? Or do you think that the guy thinks that? Um, I think they're pretty well convinced they saw something, but I guess the working theory is, was it some kind of military test? Yeah. Yeah, because okay. um, Camp Ripley isn't that far away. Camp McCoy isn't that far away. There's okay. a possibility. But I, I guess to your brother's, comment though i think i wouldn't argue that one bit the trouble you wind up and this is way off topic but yeah. you're familiar with jared diamond oh yeah yeah okay jared diamond has a thing where he and i don't want to mutilate his argument too much but but he gets into like the idea that we would have contact with a, a, a another group uh and you imagine that so the earth four billion years old okay um, and if you pictured the earth's history, like stretch your arms out as far as you can stretch them out. Okay. That's the earth's history on a, on a timeline. Mm -hmm. You could remove human history with one stroke of a nail file. Meaning here's this yeah. planet and planets are ephemeral. They come mm -hmm. and go. Here's this planet whose timeline is that long, but one stroke. This isn't McPhee. John McPhee's the guy that brought up this, that you could remove human history at the stroke of a nail file. But that's like how on this planet, which is an ephemeral sort of thing, that we've had that little human history. Now, however you begin to define the beginning of human history, like sort of the fashionable answer used to be that anatomically and behaviorally modern humans have been around for 75,000 years. And people are like, oh, no, anatomically and behaviorally Modern humans have been around for 150,000 years. But whatever it is, let's just say we have 100,000 years of anatomically and behaviorally modern humans where you could take one of them, a person from 100,000 years ago, dress them up in, in our duds, and they would and bring them up in a modern family, and they would somehow like pass as a person. They wouldn't be inconspicuous. Okay? Mm -hmm. Um. We've got that long, 100,000 years of that. But it's, it's been our ability to electronically transmit messages has been brief 
Okay. Our ability to broadcast a message out. Let's say we've been up to it for a hundred years, which is generous. You'd be able to broadcast a message. Mm-hmm. So imagine now the trouble of having another planet, having another planet's life cycle coincide with that. So not that there's not other life. There's something that looks like a chipmunk, like my grandfather's musky fishing bait. Okay, there's another planet that has a chipmunk. But to have it be that, that scaled out, that you, that one, taking the assumption that life leads to a form of, uh, leads to a thing that is curious about life on other planets or leads to a thing capable of having the faith or belief that there are other things out there which is a new idea here and have it be that it lined up perfectly and led to the same place where we in the same place in the same time have the same interest and mechanisms to do so, to make contact with one another. It becomes very difficult to, to, it becomes very difficult to picture it. Mm -hmm. So the dude, the deer hunter with the trail camera when I see that, my mind doesn't go to, oh, I'm going to explain this as an extraterrestrial presence. My mind goes to the, the hundreds of other things that it, unknown things that it could be. Yep. But to get to the guy's question, I was out running mink traps with a guy by the name of Carl. And I was in high school. And we saw a UFO out in the swamp checking mink traps. And I remember Carl looked at me and said, I'm not even going to tell anybody about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think of it as a UFO, cap, uh, lowercase okay. UFO. Yeah. Like it was a flying object yeah. I was unable to identify. Yeah. Huh. Three lights. Hmm. Well, it's kind of swirling quality to them. Well, you've heard of the, the mysterious lights up in the UP, west of um, Highway 44, 45. Only the ones that come from like drunk drivers no, at no, night driving no, on the road. No, no, there's, there's this legend up in the UP, and many people have seen it. Nothing unusual to see it. Where you, um, I think it's west of a little place called Palmyra, I think it is. But anyway, it's up off of Highway 45 going west off in the UP of Michigan. And the legend is that this light that appears at night is a lantern of an old guy in the back of a, uh, a railroad car. From Earth. From, from Earth. But, yeah. but it's a mysterious light. It's, Dude from Earth. Yeah, yeah. A ghost, basically. Mm -hmm. and, and it freaks people out. They go up there and they hear about this, you know, this mysterious ghost and this mysterious light and they go look at it and, yep, it's there. And then no one, no one in all this time has ever been able to explain where that light comes from. Mm -hmm. Just a odd, some kind of physical occurrence, obviously, but no one can explain it. What do you think about all that, Doug? I just... Uh, feeling like uh it's two o'clock in the morning after a grateful dead show listening to this conversation <laughs> so all right i think we gave that guy his due, the, the ufo researcher excuse me the 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 credentialed ufo researcher uh yanni who who's can you can you explain the guy can you explain the, your buddy you got the wrong piece of paper no i know can you explain the story, how uh, this guy? Like how we got to know him? Or no, just, no, no, or no. Just his story. Just tell the story. Oh, yeah, for sure. It can't, it, he wrote in, 
Well, he actually, he contacted me first before he <clears throat> wrote us a story because uh, he was listening to us talking about salt bait and the legalities around that. If you got caught hunting over, you know, a chunk of salt and if it was yours or not, if you knew it was there or not, you know, and how the law would deal with it. So, he Oh, yeah, looking- you know what? Hold, hold that. Um, pick it back up in a minute, but I did the... We just were talking about how Alabama made that rule that there used to be like no bait. And it was like, okay, if you're a hundred yards from your bait and you can't see the bait, if it's behind, if like, if it's out of sight and a hundred yards away, then it's okay. So then dudes started putting bait on the other side of hay bales a hundred yards away because they couldn't see the bait and it was a hundred yards away. Well, it just so happened that um, Alabama just legalized baiting oh. for... It came out because they wanted to find a more efficient way to kill hogs. They got a real hog problem in Alabama. Mm. So they're like legal, but then they rolled in. You can bait for deer and hogs now in Alabama. Full on mm. balls out. Much to the chagrin of many whitetail managers. You can now bait there. So like one hand, we're dealing with the spread of infectious diseases in deer herds. And one thing we damn sure know is the best way to get infectious diseases to jump around is to invite a bunch of animals to rub noses in a feed pile. but they legalize baiting. What's funny is you have to buy a baiting license because the fish and game department was bummed about all the revenue they would be losing from being able to give people from giving citations for baiting. They were making revenue off fines for baiting. And they're like, we're going to lose the revenue we have from it being illegal. They're supplanting it with revenue from having to buy a baiting stamp. I am not, this is not a joke. Go ahead, Jan. Simple math, right? <laughs> it just. It's practical. It, but it just, yeah. It, I think it definitely comes from the, from the hog thing. And then there's certain deer dudes. And they're like, well, we got too many deer. We need to kill more. And then people are like, the reason you got too many deer is because everybody wants to shoot big, giant, huge bucks. No one wants to kill those. They got the highest deer densities. Some of the highest deer dancers in the country. You're allowed to kill like I, I, I hunted Alabama in the late nineties and you could get a deer a day. Way back then it's more than that now. We went down and just like cold rolled in and hunted Tuskegee National Forest and killed a bunch of bucks. Hmm. Go ahead, Yanni. Speaking uh, of speaking of baiting. Speaking of baiting. So he uh contacted me and said, I got a good baiting story. <laughs> He said he and a buddy were hunting ducks in North Carolina about 15 years ago. And uh, the, the all over the general area, the hunting was pretty slow. Um, but they had plenty of time. They had plenty of time to scout. And they scouted hard. And they found a spot that was holding some ducks. So uh, they made a plan to come back the next morning. Um, it was near houses, but not close enough to be dangerous. Uh, but definitely close enough to where the house was could hear the shots i think you know there's plenty of duck hunting spots like that oh, sure yeah um i know that when i'm at my in-laws in north carolina over the holidays uh you know they, they live on the intercoastal waterway and i mean it's non-stop almost all day long you just hear you know huh. as the birds are flying up and down the yeah. intercoastal there um anyways um so they're uh they're shooting away having some action 
And uh, all of a sudden they look over and there's a woman standing on a pier with a megaphone <laughs> and she's yelling at them um, that uh, she's already called the game warden because they're hunting over bait. Well, uh, she doesn't want them hunting. No, she doesn't want them hunting. She's calling the game warden though. She knows they're hunting over bait. They, they don't know they're hunting over bait. So um, he says they shit their pants. And uh, <laughs> they're wondering what to do. And in no time, the game warden's pulling up. And the woman gets in a canoe and paddles over and tells the game warden that's now with them and their, their ducks that she knows they're hunting over bait because she put it there on purpose <laughs> yeah. so she could watch the ducks but didn't tell anyone and wanted to keep people from hunting in that area. So she figured she'd bait it. And then if it's yeah. baited, you can't hunt there. The game warden proceeded to write the woman a ticket for hunter harassment <laughs> and then told the two hunters to go ahead and finish out the hunt. But after that, to stay out of there a few weeks, since at that point they knew it was baited and he felt that uh, the general rule was that a baited area couldn't be hunted for 10 days after the bait was put out. Uh, yeah. I love it. So... That's I, the thing, I, like, I followed up with them to ask, uh, you know, obviously now at that point, they're like, damn, this might be good. So I followed up to see if they limited, but he said it just felt too sketchy. So they just left. That oh, he didn't take the warden up on the offer? No. Huh. No. I would have. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of things going on there that warrant discussion. One is um, ducks are migratory. I'm talking to the listeners here. Mm-hmm. Ducks are migratory. So a state can't claim, you know, you know, states manage their own wildlife with the exception of something that has federal protections, like through the Endangered Species Act or migratory stuff, because you can't claim ownership of a bird that's, that's traveling, you know, thousands of miles and just stopping in at places. So the way they kind of like, the way they, the feds and, and the feds and the states co-manage migratory birds, and you have flyways in the U.S. Because you imagine like bird movements are generally like these north-south movements. So you have the Atlantic flyway, the Pacific flyway. How many are there all together? There's four or five flyways. Mississippi River flyway. Mississippi flyway. Sent. Then there's the there's one that goes down Central. the rock. Central. Anyway, then there's four or five flyways. Look that up, will you? I should know that. You got a handful of flyways. And the, the, the waterfowl, like migratory wildfowl, is managed sort of on the flyway level. And then the states and the feds work together, and they kind of look at, there's four flyways. Name them off, Yanni. Pacific, Central, Mississippi, and Atlantic. There you go. So you'll look at, like, what a state, what a state's contribution so to speak, is to the general well-being of a species. And if a waterfowl species really utilizes the state heavily for wintering grounds or utilizes the state heavily for breeding grounds, um, that state's allocation of that resource will be greater than, say, a state where the birds just pass through and don't really utilize mm. the area at all. And it, it's kind of like a good system because it'll it it prohibits a state from extracting like more than its share of a resource 
which would then impact other people down the line. The same way if you live on a creek and you feel free to pour all kinds of poison into the creek on your property, that poison will flow downriver and affect the guy down the stream. And that's why we have rules that prohibit one's actions on their land from having a negative impact on the actions of someone else's land. Sort of that same kind of logic at play with waterfowl. What was I getting at? Oh, point I was getting at is you can't bait migratory birds. Federal, like even if a state decided, hey man, we want to allow uh, baiting ducks, you're not going to be able to do it because the feds are never going to agree to it. Bait and waterfowl. But you can, even if you go and plant crops, like even if you go, let's say you're a guy that likes to hunt ducks and you own a bunch of land and you're like, I'm going to grow corn on my land because I like to hunt ducks. Even if you're doing that, you can't, right, you can't raise that corn and harvest that corn out of sync with how corn is harvested when used for agricultural purposes. Like you can't grow a bunch of corn, never harvest it, wait for the duck migration to come in, knock all the corn down and flood it and start hunting ducks. You have to, if you plant it, you have to pick it the way it would be picked. You can't just like loophole your way around it by doing weird stuff. People do do weird stuff and you can do like enhancements and plant native vegetation that ducks like to eat, all that kind of stuff. Habitat improvements are fine, but you can't do sort of like egregious kind of accidental baiting. Mm -hmm. Baiting by, like I said, the most egregious case would be that you would somehow grow corn pick it and or then any kind ac- of grains and then maybe flood it and then accidentally spill all the grain and not pick it up and then flood it and then be like oh you know i'm a farmer they watch that kind of stuff and in wisconsin <clears throat> property taxes are based on, on on rural land is based on land use and i just have some folks that i'm working with who uh have a uh complaint about their property taxes haven't gone up and they said well this is agriculture and what it is is a 20-acre food plot mm-hmm. that they, you know, they went in and knocked it down. They said, oh, well, the crop didn't come up. I mean, that's what they're trying to tell the assessor. And the assessor's just like, no, that's, that's, <laughs> that's undeveloped property, which is at a much higher rate than um, egg property. He wasn't he was buying saying. the farm. He wasn't buying it at all. I said, dude, and they were asking me, don't you think this? I said, no, it sounds to me like if you want to be a farmer, you need to be a farmer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, so. Here, so, so that's one interesting thing, point of conversation out of this story mm-hmm. by this guy. The other point is the fact that, and this is, I think, not widely known, that it's Ill, oftentimes in many states, and Pat Durkin's going to speak to this, it's illegal to screw with a hunter or a trapper or a fisherman. You can't harass him. Mm-hmm. You can't molest his hunt. Remember Jeremiah Johnson? He gets accused by uh, Bear Claw Chris Clapp of molesting his grizzly hunt. Right. It's illegal to molest someone's hunt, as that woman found out. That's what she was in trouble for. Yeah. Harassing a hunter who's engaged in illegal activity. Yeah, is that a federal or state by state? State by state. state. And and every state now has an anti-harassment law. Every state. Every state has it. Yeah, the the United States Sportsman Alliance back in the '80s basically helped states. They crafted a model legislation, and the states—it's one of those 
easy ones to pass. No one, no one likes harassment of a legal activity, so it passed in all 50 states. I didn't know that. Yeah. I remember when it passed. I remember I was living in Michigan, I think, when it passed in Michigan. I feel yeah. like I was living in Michigan when it passed in Michigan. And I was curious a minute because of trapping, because trappers were getting harassed. Yeah. yeah right. I, that's, where that, that's where the sportsman's lines came from, right? <clears throat> well, Trapper yeah. harassment or some kind of trapping ban in Ohio. Is that right? We that, heard the story that, recently. That might be because that's where they're from, you know, yeah. in Columbus. Yeah. I remember, I remember covering those guys in the mid-'80s. They were doing you know, trips around the country in those days, rounding up support for their organization. Yeah. But, you know, I remember in Wisconsin here, we had a, a, a face-to-face harassment going on in Blue Mound State Park, mm-hmm. which is over not too far from Doug's farm. And the DNR had wardens out there, and they pretty much um, didn't interfere a whole lot and didn't arrest anybody because they just figured we're not going to make martyrs out of these people. And all these laws went into effect, and basically the wardens told these people, you know, you can, okay, you've been warned now, and if we come back and you're still harassing them, then we'll have to take action. But um, what's, what's, I think, fascinating about the story that you're sharing here is that's really become how that law is being enforced. I mean, there's very, very few cases now where animal rights activists go out in an organized fashion and disrupt hunts. It just doesn't, it's unusual now. What's happening? You think though, thanks to that legislation? Yeah, that's that's probably part of it. They they know that this this is something that they can be if they physically interrupt someone's hunt, blur noise, do anything to harass, molest. It's illegal, and it's it's pretty well. You know, it's been it's stood up to the various legal challenges, and so they probably don't challenge it anymore. That's probably why you don't see that kind of um, enforcement action being taken because it just isn't happening. Probably because of the law. But what's happening is all these people pull that kind of in a business where they honk, honk their horns and the neighbor's hunting in his backyard. Um, they, you, know, like, you can Google this stuff. It's, I, I did this in preparation. It's fun to do. You start Googling hunter harassment. What do you see? It's basically neighborhood situations. Um, situations like a guy opening day of Wisconsin's gun season doesn't like his neighbor hunting the fence line. So he goes up there and starts cutting ch- the chainsaw, starts doing his <laughs> firewood project <laughs> op- op- opening day. And the person, the hunter, gets pissed off, climbs down. And this is, you know, back probably before his cell phone coverage was so good and calls the ward and the ward comes out, tells the neighbor, quit cutting the wood. You know, come on, that's, I can set you for harassment. But how did he know the guy just didn't want to cut some wood? Because it's a long-running battle. You know, typical neighbor shit that goes back and forth between two neighbors that don't like each other. And a fine boils over an opening day and, the, and then they get the wardens involved. Yeah. You know, I know a case where there was hunter harassment from one hunter to the other. Oh, yeah. Our good friend Kevin Murphy, the world's greatest small game hunter, did a trip up to my home state of Michigan and was hunting my home national forest, Manistee National Forest, which I think now goes by a different name, or it's Huron Manistee. Anyways, it's Hunt Manistee National yeah. Forest. And they're out there with these, they're out there with their squirrel dogs, which is oh. not a quiet type of dog. Sure. I mean, these, these things make a racket. Yeah. But anyway, some bow hunter comes peeling down out of his tree, freaking out on him. Hmm. I'd have called up on that guy for hunter yeah. harassment. Yeah. Yeah, the question. Like he felt that his deer hunting trumped Kevin's squirrel hunting, which well, I strongly disagree hunter, with. Yeah. yeah, to me, it's, it's public land and you take what you get. Yeah, it's like, sorry, bro. Yeah. No yeah, those deer may, or the, the dogs may have as easily run a deer past the guy as, or, you know, scared a deer. So that yeah, and if you that. don't like it, I mean, the thing to do is get organized and try to change the laws, right? 
yeah. or change the seasons or whatever it might be. But the thing is, they enjoy, you know, you, you enjoy both of those guys. So squirrel hunters more so than deer hunters, but you already enjoy a very long season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to, you know, if you whittled it down and we're like, okay, we're gonna have a week long archery deer season. And it will make it real quiet in the woods. I think that your average bow hunter would be like, you know what? I- I'll stick with the six or eight weeks yeah. that I have, mm-hmm. understanding that there's going to be some other activities going on out here. Because a lot of states <clears throat> will come in and shut down small game for the firearm season. Or like a day before, right? There's something like that in Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Not, not anymore. Yeah. Oh, there's not anymore. No, no you can... You can you can hunt yeah, remember because oh. we we talked about this when we st- we were going to hunt with Brittany and Helen because we want to hunt squirrels first. I we thought were... you can't go shooting off guns the day before deer season. They changed starts. it. They changed oh. it. Yeah, it was yeah. the day before deer season we squirrel hunted with Brittany. And so Helen. they just changed it. Yeah, it's pretty recent that you couldn't go shooting yeah, off that, firearms. That, it was more of a oh you don't want to disturb the woods. Oh let's not go right, in there. And right. then the next morning my nephew goes out there and shoots a big buck right where you guys we were right, shooting squirrels because well, you know what it does it sets the deer at ease. Well, the warden, the deer, like. He says, dude, I was freaking out. Then I realized they're just hunting squirrels. <laughs> I'm going, tricked him. that's where I'm going to go. Yeah. Um, I, I, so that woman was. Uh, Which woman? The woman with the, the deer. In the canoe. In the canoe. She was cited for hunter harassment. And baiting. And baiting? We don't know about that. Because oh. she should no. have been cited for baiting also, yeah. Then, right? Yeah. But she wasn't baiting to hunt, so I don't, then you get into this tricky thing. Oh, I'm sure yeah, someone right like feeding the wildlife in your backyard. Right. That's a right. whole thing in Wisconsin about, oh, this isn't baiting. This is I'm feeding wildlife. I'm not Right, hunting. and in some states, you can't do that. In Montana, you can't feed wildlife at all. And so that's how, I don't know. Seems like a good rule to me. Yeah. You know, a guy recently wrote in to say, to ask how many people we would all like at our funeral. Meaning, if you were to die and then look down from the heavens... What would, if you look down, what would you feel would be the right number? For me, it'd be like four. Or up at the bottoms of their boots, depending. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> depending oh, on how you point, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Back looking, to the Grateful Dead show. Yeah. Looking, yeah. Looking <laughs> up different from, perspective. <laughs> looking up from hell, how many people would you like to see there? But the reason that I'm thinking about that now is I had wanted, um, I haven't codified, I haven't written this down, but I, I, I know where I want my carcass dumped. I don't want to be cremated or buried. I want to be surface dispersed. In, it's a piece of public land. Um, and I know the exact spot and I've explained it to my wife. Uh, I want to be surface dumped there in order to be ravaged by wild beasts. Yeah. Um, and I realize now besides the incredible headache, because this is a, they're going to have to, whoever does this has to haul my, I think they should part it out and game bag it, <laughs> but they got to pack me in four miles and then dump my surface, dump my carcass. And now I'm thinking about there's That's probably illegal oh, for a def- handful of reasons. Definitely illegal. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Crazy horse. I'm not likening myself to these people in any way. I'm just, I just know because I've been interested in having my body. I, I would like my body to be dumped in the woods, in the mountains. Um, so in wondering about the legality of that, I've looked at cases where there are, uh, where people have gone and dumped people, buried people. Crazy Horse, after he was killed in Nebraska, 
uh, by bayonet was they've never found his body. They took him out of the fort, and so he's somewhere buried there. No one knows where. Jammed into a crack in the rocks, perhaps. No one's ever found Crazy Horse's body. Ed Abbey, his friends, dumped him. Hmm. And they have never divulged. Uh, I think that the, the, the grizzly bear researcher Doug Peacock was involved in this. They've never divulged where they put his carcass. So I would like, to, I really would like to be surface dumped, but it's like, maybe there is a way around it. Uh, you know, I don't know. Have you have you looked into it? No, I'm just gonna like make it clear that that's what I want done, and then if the people who are left to do this, which I presume <laughs> be my children, if they're left to do this and they really honestly just do not want to follow their father's dying wishes, <laughs> I will leave that decision to them. If not, I feel like they're gonna have to do it. And they're going to have to face the consequences, however minor they might be. Be like, yes, your honor. We took an old man's carcass out and dumped it in the woods. Yeah. Well, I'm sure a lawyer is crafting the email right now to us to explain how we can get, get around it, get it done. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work. Try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription. And you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. 
So, when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out, there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. So, Pat, all 50 states have a no harassing hunter law. Yeah. So, and, and I know it's extensive. Hold on, hold on. We, you, we started that with talking about how many people are going to be at the funeral. <laughs> yeah, we didn't get that. How many people are going to be at your funeral? How many people do you want at your funeral? Is, well, it's going to have to be the least. Is that your funeral? Enough to carry the body, huh? Yeah. Like, I don't want, I still want it to be fun. So, 30, 40 pounds per person. It's only like it take four people to carry it. Imagine some other people are going to go too. If I looked down and saw 10, but see, it depends on when I die because, like, right now, I'd expect certain family members to be right. there, but presumably they'll be dead when I die. So I don't know. Like I would like if I looked down and saw less than three, I'd know there's a real problem because I have three children. (laughs) Right. Hmm. So less than three would be one that my life was destroyed by the loss of one of my children. At which point I don't care what happens to me after I die. And then uh ten? Eleven, I'd feel like there's some people down there who probably shouldn't be there. They're just going because they want to see this all play out. I was going to volunteer. I'd say, you know, uh, I'd be happy to take thirty or forty pounds of you and drop you somewhere. But you'll be so dead by then. Well, I was going to say you're going to have to. We're going to have to work on the timing a little. This bit. This coming from a man who pulled out his hearing aids and laid them on, <laughs> and laid them on a table. Yeah, and unfortunately, I can't have the bullshit uh, filters on now. So. And I'd volunteer too, Steve, but I'm older than Doug, so. Yeah, no, I, I, I would like to think you guys would be long dead. <laughs> Doug, are you going to be buried at your farm? Uh, you know, we've talked about that a bunch. We're trying to figure it out. We a, drove making past. A fa- making a family plot? Well, we have a big old family plot up at the where, the, where I went to church, and that, that cemetery, my family was a part of the, the establishment of that church and everything and that's where all my like my brother's buried there my dad's mm. buried there my grandparents my i mean you go out there and there, you can't swing a cat in that cemetery without hitting a durant tombstone so um you can't swing a cat around there without hitting a durant <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's true the damn road down the road is named Duran road yeah um i uh put some of my dad's ashes uh under his favorite deer stand on the farm yeah i remember that and did uh, you put anything in the family plot yeah. You didn't like cremate part of them and bury part of them. No, it was all cremated. Oh, so okay. there's a little urn in the family plot and then and up there. Hmm. So those are the two places because, you know, the Pope said, we don't want people scattering ashes all around the country. Keep your, keep your pile together as close as it can be. And I figured that was close enough. Yeah. My sister-in-law, um, on her ranch, they 
have a, I guess what passes as a cemetery. Yeah. Or cemetery to them. Yeah. I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. She, when her and my brother got married, it's like you could look off and there's a there it is. rock yeah. pile or whatever over there where grandfather and Mr. Potter. Yeah. Get married right on top of the bones of your ancestors on your own land. Yeah. That's nice. Um, and now she's got grizzlies on her place, so I might just be able to do my whole body dump. <laughs> You'd be gone tomorrow. Did he? Did he have any other context with the question, or that that was it? He just wanted to know how many people we we. He like just to wanted have. to know what you would think of as good enough. What's your answer? Yeah, I never really thought about it. I guess that's the thing. It's all about the timing, because you hope now, if it happened. That yeah, there could be a thousand people there. Mm. Okay, no, no. I'm just saying, whatever. Some great amount of you know friends and peers and whatever that you've had that kind of reach that so many people would like to come and you yeah. know support you. Yeah. But yeah, when you're you know my recently deceased grandmother's age, it's like you don't. She didn't have any peers. She outlived everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So you know. We had quite, I, you know, we had almost 40 people there, though, which was like, I didn't expect it, you know? But you forget how many, like, I think little tentacles, you know, people have out there and how many, you know, close associations you have. My you know, dad? it's funny you bring it up because the, the, you know, my father, I've, as I've talked about many times, my father fought in World War II, so he had me when he was 50 years old. And... I was raised around retired as a kid. I was brought up around retired or semi-retired World War II vets to a large degree. Many of my dad's best friends were that way, and they just fished. Um, there's of that whole circle. There's only there's one left who lives down the beach from my mom. And I think about that guy often, like last man standing, like all of that guy's friends that he spent his entire adult life with have just been whittled away. And he was a, he was a pilot in World War II. And it's like his, it's like when that guy wakes up and goes to call his buddies, there's no one to call, man. He just ran out of them, you know, yeah. over the last 10, 15 years. Well, he's got younger buddies now. <clears throat> yeah, but like the main, the, you know, the main, the main people yeah. that I watched him yeah. spend decades with, they're just gone. But what's, what's fun about, not fun, but what's, I think, fascinating about wakes and funerals, though, is their, their colleagues are gone. Their, their siblings are gone. In many cases, like my, my dad died. And yet you see all the people who they touched that you never had any idea how they touched them. They show up at, these, at the wake and you think, oh, dad did okay. Yeah. Now, now that, that's fascinating because, I mean, you had some awareness of it, but until, you, until they die... And you hold awake. You don't know what the hell your parents, what how they worked their magic outside the family. It, it was it was a, kind of a cool process to see. Mm-hmm. So Yanni, what's Agreed. your final number? Let's say you died right now. You just fell over dead right now because your heart problem. <laughs> would you want it to be? Would you want it to be just like me and your wife, or just me, <laughs> or a hundred? Uh, you know, a hundred th- Latvians. I, I think I'd be probably pretty happy if just my family was there and i would feel gracious if there was a hundred of my friends i guess so big numbers yeah so you'd want to look up from hell and see 
200 booths. Everybody having a big party? 200 booths belonging to 100 people. Yeah, sure. Oh, I want it to be so somber when I die, man. I don't, like, this celebration of life, uh-uh. It's going to no. be just, I want it to be sad. <laughs> I want it to ground to be wet with tears, man. Um, well, don't I get to say how I want to go? Please. No, I do want to hear. Would you like to hear how many you'd like to have? Um, if I, I'd say either, either be cremated or my, my big wish, but it will never happen. I've always liked the idea what they did in the Navy in World War II. They get a big sack, throw throw your body in there, throw a couple of big shell, empty shell cases in, these big brass shell cases. Off off the side you go. That's how Osama bin Laden was buried. Yeah, basically. I always thought that that's kind of a cool way. You know, people don't have to come out and weep over a grave site. You know, and they know you're out there somewhere, and that's good enough for me. So that, that's my um. So you'd like my, to be taken out to sea? Yeah. Another way they used to do it is they'd put you in a sort of flammable boat and set huh. the boat full of like brush and sticks and whatnot, lay your carcass out on it, huh. set the boat on fire and push it out. Kind of you like remember, the Vikings, huh? Right. Do you remember who it was? Because I feel like that was popularized by some movie. It was popularized it was. by Dead Man. No, the burning part wasn't in Dead Man. In, in Jim Jarmusch's film Dead Man, which is probably the greatest Western ever made, <laughs> one of the greatest Westerns ever made. Um, in the end, he puts a what is in fact a live person that he thinks is dead and come back to life, puts him in a boat and says, it's time for you to go back to where you came from. Got it. Wow. You but, know, have well, you seen Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man? I guess mm-hmm. I haven't. I haven't. Sounds okay. like I, I got to tell you the premise. <laughs> Can I tell no, you don't premise? ruin it for me. Man. Okay. Don't ruin it for All right, me. never mind. But uh, how, how many people? Uh, how many people? Um, <clears throat> 25. People who were close, and then it was a Navy ship. Whoever who's ever on deck? Whoever's on deck? Yeah. And huh. it's. And I'd say I'd, I, if it were a tugboat, that'd be fine with me. You only need about eight people. That's fine. If it, if it had a Navy connection, I'd be cool with it. Well, your daughter would be able to pull strings because she's yeah, in the Navy. That's right. I could. I could. You know, keep her on a while. She could go to the top brass, be like, "Hey, uh, here's the deal. See that." <laughs> bag over there <laughs> <laughs> we need to take a little ride <laughs> i need a boat ride oh i've never thought of this the only thing that i've ever thought about was that uh that whole thing about leading your life and and uh writing your uh your own obituary and then leading your life accordingly hmm. that's not something i've thought about a lot but i did want to say about my dad uh it was he and another guy pete melford in casanova the last two world war ii vets and neither one of those guys wanted to give up. It was like a grudge match between the two of them, how long they were going to live and stuff. Yeah. Pete outlived dad. But, hmm. uh, and that, that was interesting because my father was like Pat's, a you know, pillar of the community and how many people came through. And, uh, yeah, you really do see how uh, your the tentacles, the influence that he'd had over people in the community. And um, I guess that's the kind of thing that uh, – that's really gratifying, but you know, personally, I never thought about it. Mm-hmm. Probably won't. I'll just be dead. Yeah, that's the other thing I think about all the time. It's like, who cares? I'm just dead. You're dead anyway. Yeah. Because, but but the thing is, death planning, big business. Well, yeah, but it's like it's you do it. You make your wishes alive because you're just saying what you what in life I like the idea of. So the execution of it. 
the fact that people feel beholden to carry out your wishes really says something because there's no ramification. You can't get pissed at them. Right? Boy, I sure my Unless father would have pissed back at him from the heavens somehow. <laughs> I wouldn't have done what he wanted me to do. Yeah. yeah. The heavens are hells or whatever. Yeah. The, the, the microbial form that you wind up taking. Uh, so Pat, 50 states have anti, is it covered <laughs> by, is it covered by fishing too? I know trapping. Mm-hmm. Are fishing, is fishing protected? I don't know if it is. I, don't, I haven't seen anything specific. You always hear Hunter so I, Basically hunting and trapping, I think. Because those are the ones that... Um, Who harasses a fisherman? I've been, when <laughs> other I've been, fishermen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I've yeah. been harassed by other fishermen. Yep. And I've been harassed by people who own the land where I might happen to be fishing without permission mm-hmm. at times. But that's more, that's different. Yeah. But it's good to know. So anyone who's listening, if they ever have someone come out and harass them while hunting... Yeah. Pick up your phone or go do go to a phone and call and get the person in trouble. Yeah, and then, uh, the one that, the case you see quite often these days is on public lands too, where a guy um, has a tree stand up and comes back a couple of days later and this tree stands laying on the ground or it's been um, damaged in some way and realizes, well, he inadvertently moved on to some other guy's, you know, turf who thinks, He's entitled to that spot. He's been hunting the spot for however long. Or what happens in Wisconsin a lot is the damn bait piles. These guys start maintaining a bait pile. They start thinking that's their bait pile, their property, and then they, they defend it. And so you have these wardens have to go in there and separate these guys and say, you know, this isn't your land. He has every right to be here. And they have, so you have those kind of disputes. Wisconsin's got an interesting one going on, going on right now. They passed a law last year to um, prevent animal rights activists from even filming and vi- videotaping, recording images, repeat it, it lost system like repeatedly. And I personally think that one's going to get shot down in courts because I don't know how you can prevent someone like me, a journalist, from taking a picture of guys down the road, like let's say bear hunters getting their dogs ready to go. And that's what's happening was this came up because um, a case came up where some animal rights activists were up in northern Wisconsin monitoring the bear hunters, the wolf hunters, the, the, the guys with the hounds didn't like the hounds up there chasing bears and wolves. I can't think of it. I think it's mainly about worrying about wolf hunting, though. Hmm. And so they, they got some lawmaker to write a, write a bill saying you can't write a law. It's actually law now that you can't um, repeatedly stand there like on a road and videotape these guys down the road doing their business. That and seems I, like a stretch. Yeah, that's a stretch because I think you get then you you're out in public you, doing well, the yeah, public exactly. activity. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, you can't go into some guy's property and do that. that yeah. You couldn't do that anyway. That'd be trespassing. Right. But and if you followed them through the woods, it could be harassment. Right. But, but just to stand there in the road and or shoot down a um, an old logging road, that kind of thing, I think that gets in the First Amendment stuff. I don't know how that will ever will stand the test of time in, in courts. But um, yeah, that, that that's. You talk to almost anyone up in the public lands up north right now, almost everyone has some kind of story like that where they they left a tree stand out or they have a bait pile, their buddy had a bait pile. There's always all those kind of stories. That's common now. Those but like fratricide, hunter on hunter. Hunter on hunter, yeah. yeah. And then the one I mentioned earlier, the, the backyard ha- ha- situations are becoming more common because you have more suburban hunting. Um, Washington, the, one of these suburbs of, the, of our, sta- our nation's capital, um, these... Northern Virginia neighborhoods, there's a 
pretty good case where the, the Archery Trade Association, which I do a lot of work with, actually got involved in providing an attorney to fight it because one of these neighborhood associations was trying to prevent a guy, trying to prevent a bow hunting group. When these, um, they had these cool bow hunting groups in these big urban areas that go out and shoot deer in people's yards to basically try to knock the, knock the herd down. And this one guy, one group that was doing that a lot, they were getting harassed and being told and actually legally not you can't hunt this neighborhood you know, our, our association you know is gonna you know has a um what do you call this covenants yeah. to, to prevent that well the archery trade association took it on got their lawyer involved and got it struck struck they got stricken down stricken down because it was just you know violates um they you know the homeowners associations cannot dictate hunting rules that's the state's province unless and, they own the land unless they own the land yeah but they're but, but they're dictating but it Right. That reminds me of an old joke. They're dictating it to <laughs> they're dictating it to other landowners, right? And you can't do that. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's why they got yeah because the, the, the state is jealous of its all, all states it's protective are, yeah. of its right to yeah. to manage hunting. And, and and from the the big point of view is that well they're representing us, you know the, the state wildlife associate uh, agencies they represent us. And so they're looking out for our rights by by fight, by fighting it. So, so that's where these cases are gone. It's not. It's no longer the animal rights people typically creating the problems. It's it's hunters and neighbors that kind of thing. Just to be clear, because I happen to have very personal, uh, um, uh, what do I say? Like covenant uh, expertise. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I got I got some skin in this game. Um, because oh yeah, yeah. my supposed HOA, yeah. which you know it it came in perpetuity with the property, right? So we never signed anything. There's never been a meeting. We don't pay any dues. There's maybe twenty rules, you know, there that we're supposed to follow, and one of them is no hunting with firearms. Only mm. only you can hunt with a bow. It doesn't say you can't shoot firearms, but you can't hunt with firearms. And you're saying that they. Cannot enforce that. I bet you, if, if if you were to challenge it, they'd have a hard time defending it, because that's really a, a state, um, that's a state issue. They can't be dictating that. But you know, cities can pass ordinance, so if it's a safety situation, sure. yeah. they they can provide, they can do that. Yeah, no firearms in the village. No yeah. firearms in the city. No. So it's a matter. It seems like if it's a neighborhood association and there's like common ground in the middle of it, you know, and the houses are all around it, that if they own that as a group or that was a part of that development or whatever, they, uh, I don't See, know. Yeah, I just mixing, got real bored all of a sudden. Yeah, by, me by, too. By mixing the hunting into it, I think it, I think it complicates the situation. Right. What I'd like to see, <laughs> what's starting to concern me is when the, the agencies that will run like a bear hunt, <laughs> but they'll have a mandatory check station so Florida did this in their ill-fated bear hunt. Mm-hmm. New Jersey in their soon-to-be ill-fated bear hunt. They actually elected a governor who ran on a anti-bear hunting, had an anti-bear hunting plank in his platform. Yeah. I don't need it. It's just we got an email from a guy who uh started hunting and then got uh Started hunting, got divorced, and now his ex-wife goes down to join the bear hunting protesters. So he said his life's become a real joke. <laughs> a real joke in his circle of friends. 
But they have these check stations. Uh-huh. And they make an actual protest area at the check station so that people can come down and harass hunters who are legally obligated to go to that specific check station rather than to be able to go to, you know, a facility like normal. When you go to check something, you go to the fish and game office, right? right? You go in, you go into a enclosed area or whatever and do a check thing. So they got to like set off like a protest zone so people can heckle and harass hmm. people who are fulfilling, one, they're legally allowed to hunt. They're fulfilling their legal obligation to check the thing, but they got to do so against the backdrop. Wow, I'm surprised they let that go. Of a bunch of yahoos. Well, you, you can't prevent people from protesting as long as they're not physically doing something to the people. Yeah, at a turkey check station, I'm guessing no one shows up. <laughs> when you have a turkey check station, you probably don't need to have an area oh, for people. Oh, and I to, see, at uh, that uh, point, it's not really harassment because they're not affecting the hunt. Right. Yeah. They're just I don't like protests. it, though. Yeah. See, I, I, I don't in like in it this world, there are things where you're like, that's why I would like to be an absolute <laughs> dictator because, um, because then I wouldn't have to worry about the legality. Like, just certain rules I wanted to have. I didn't have to worry about why, like, how to justify them. I'd be like, oh, in, in addition to all that, I don't want this to happen either. I, don't, I can't explain why. I just don't like it. <laughs> I just don't like it. I can't and I don't, won't. I don't care what you think. Watch this segue. Okay. Speaking of hunter harassment. <laughs> speaking of hunter harassment, Pat Durkin, I think that, if, that, that blue laws are a form of hunter harassment. Can you explain a blue law? I just sprang this on Pat. Okay. Um, I'll right away start with an apology that I'm not from a state that has ever had blue laws. But, I think you should brag but, about that. Yeah. yeah. I think you should apologize about that. <laughs> no, I, 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 I apologize for saying I'm not the, the most versed in this topic, so I'm sure someone will, will correct me on this. But I do remember, I have some experience in this because when I was stationed in Virginia back in the 70s, um, Virginia had a blue law, and I think it's still in effect. And, you, and the blue law, basically, from my understanding, was that um, stores, like big department stores, um, shopping malls, um, hunting, you could not go out on, on Sundays and hunt. You couldn't go out and shop at these big shopping malls. All those stores are shut down. So you couldn't shop or hunt? You couldn't shop or hunt. You could go fishing, though. But I, but I, this has to do with the Sabbath, right? I'm sure it has to do with the Sabbath because the only place I'm aware of, well, actually, I think, um, I think until recently, I think Manitoba had a no Sunday hunting or, or Saskatchewan, one of those provinces had it too. So I, it's not just a Southern thing. It's something that I think probably certain religions um, just didn't think it's proper to be hunting on Sundays. Yeah, like Pennsylvania, like our man Brody Henderson, a frequent guest here, wrote a piece on our website if you go to the com, you can look up brody's piece mm-hmm. about about blue laws yeah which which me and everyone i know feels they should be just categorically repealed across the board um it, it's 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 just like upsetting to me yeah but the, that you can fish as though as though like to think that the god would look down and be mad at a guy solemnly sitting in his tree stand all day okay yeah in quiet contemplation as he awaits the arrival of a deer that he knows will probably not show up and god would be mad at that guy but then some dude sitting on the edge of a pond 
swilling beers and yelling back and forth up and down the bank with his buddies, fishing all day. Racing down the... It's like... That, that, right? It yeah. just doesn't make sense. No. Well, I think they, they would probably look back now and look at that as a failure in their part when they made the rule. It's just that we should have thrown in fishing. Definitely. If, and watching football. Even playing football on Sundays. I mean, the goal has got to be to get more people through the church doors. Right? Doug? Well, Doug, did you actually raise your hand? I raised my hand. <laughs> I've been, I've been it in, helps. It helps to do that I, in this circle. I, you know, I yeah. don't want to interrupt. I think that the fishing thing is probably because the apostles were all fishermen. Uh, I like that. I like that. Yeah. When told to... Uh, that great story. Cast your nets on the other side of the boat. Remember that Bible story? Yes. Um, that could be. Now, I used to trap on some land, not Amish, but I used to trap on a lot of Mennonite properties. And they keep, I believe, I believe they're Mennonites. I believe they kept the Saturday Sabbath, hmm. which was the, like the original Sabbath. People used to think that, everyone used to think that Saturday was the Sabbath, sundown. Like that's how the Jews honor it, mm-hmm. right? Sundown Friday sundown saturday i used to trap on their land they wouldn't let you check traps on the sabbath they didn't want anybody out running traps because they honored the sabbath they weren't like doing weird shortcuts right i mean they were like strict by the book um and i would trap fox so you can't not check your you know you got you gotta check traps every morning Mm -hmm. early earlier the better i'd have to go pull them all i'd pull them all on friday and then reset on sunday because you can't just like leave them out and not run them. But there I was like more indulgent because there I was like, you know what? You, oh, yeah. you go so far out of your way to stay true to an understanding of a text, right? Mm-hmm. That there I feel like, like I'm like, yeah, I get it. But when people who just like so randomly sort of cherry pick parts that they're like, oh, I'm gonna, I agree with that part, that part, never mind. Then I get a little bit intolerant of it. Yeah, and what's fascinating to me about that, not hunting on Sundays, I had shipmates who were from Virginia, and they're from southern states that had blue laws. And I'd tell them, well, in Wisconsin, we don't have that. We can hunt all, all seven days of the week. And aren't you working to repeal this? Why don't you get rid of that? And they looked at me like I was nuts. And I, you know, I, that's just unheard of that you would go out and shoot a gun on a Sunday. They didn't, they didn't like the idea. They'd fight it. Really? And Maybe it's the peacefulness of the day. But Brody's but, but, point but, was this. But, Most guys only can hunt the weekend. So here yeah, you are eliminating, right. your, you're, you're eliminating your hunting. You're cutting it down by 50%. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. I, I, my story, in my typical weekend of hunting in Virginia would be to leave the ship on Friday night, drive five hours out to um, Bath County, Virginia, hunt all day Saturday, shut down Sunday, hunt half the day Monday, and then, then drive back to the ship. And it just, just used to drive me nuts, giving up that Sunday. Go, I go scouting and stuff, but it's not the same. Now I, I'm getting ripped off here. And another thing, another piece of, the, uh, another piece of this that's not related, but sim- remind, that I'm reminded of, it's something we talked about earlier, which is that a lot of states um, cut off cut off your hunt day at some time. Mm-hmm. But I only know that for turkeys. Well, no, because Mile Man used to talk about this. Mile Man, in 
post-war years, they would go down to hunt geese. And they would hunt geese in places where you could only hunt geese till, I can't remember what it was, noon. Hmm. But this is back when there weren't that many Canada geese, you know. Like, like it wasn't like it wasn't like today where they're trying to like come up with creative ways to inspire people to kill more Canada geese. Uh, this is back when there weren't that many geese, but you couldn't hunt till noon. And he said those geese would sit on a refuge, and they would like normally a goose wakes up in the morning and the first thing on his mind, he's going to leave his roost and they roost on open water, big open water. He's going to leave his roost and go eat. The law had trained that those geese had learned to sit on the roost and they would sit on the roost. And he said, he could be exaggerating, but he said it was like at 1201, <laughs> the geese would leave the roost and go feed in the fields. They had picked it up. Wow. Yeah. But now it's primarily a turkey thing. We're hunting in California. You have to quit hunting turkeys at three. In Missouri, you have to quit hunting turkeys at one, I believe. And I think California was four. It was four. Like, I felt like it was a very odd time. Like very late in the day. Because almost like they don't want you going in. Well, what do you think of this, Pat? Ours started off, we kind of adopted um Missouri's rule. We ours started off with noon. And the explanation we got was that it gave the turkeys a break in the afternoon and made them easier to call the next day. They got it they had all these different rationales for they they gobble more than not being pestered all through the day. And then um also, the argument that they didn't like, they didn't think, like the idea that people could sit and wait for them to come back to a roosting area and shoot them off, the, you know, coming, basically ambush them coming back to roost. But, you know, we had Which that. only worked so well. Yeah. It I, only worked so well. Because the turkey doesn't have. I agree. In his life, like, what, Doug? <laughs> yeah, you, go, you look like you're like either having a heart attack or like, <laughs> what? What? I, what? You're just going to go in that whole thing about turkeys not using the same roosts and... No, and- listen, listen. Yeah, I am. I am. <laughs> I am. Unplug his thing. <laughs> turkeys do like to use the same roost. They do not feel married to a roost. They'll True. use it when it suits them. But the idea, unless you're talking about some extreme desert situation where you have an oasis that has like a couple sycamores growing in the bottom of it, and that's the only way for that son of a bitch to get up off the ground. Then you might kind of have him by the short hairs when it comes to setting up on his roost. Most turkeys, like, they'll roost in the same tree a bunch of nights in a row unless there's a reason not to. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 I don't totally want to get agree. unplugged, so I'll agree with you now. I, well, what? what? <laughs> I don't understand. It's, it's, still, it's, uh, it can be, it's totally a, a workable tactic. I mean, I've killed a handful of birds by but going to the roost. But it's not like, okay. Sure. When I, was research, when I was researching my buffalo book, I would read about hide hunters out on the Texas plains who would find an isolated water hole that was getting used. And when it got dark out, they would build fires and make a lot of ruckus around the water hole to prevent any animals from approaching during the dark when it was hard to see them and shoot mm. and work in order to only allow them the opportunity to even think about coming for water during the daylight hours when you could kill them. And they would do it in a way where they knew they had a herd, you know, the technical term, by the short hairs and having identified its sole water source. Right. Okay. That, to, to act like sitting a roost for turkeys is somehow where you're sort of like got them and you've, you've backed them into a corner now 
isn't true. Oh, and now you're getting back to like the the, the law reasoning, right? Yeah, I, I totally. No, 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 I'm, I'm beyond the law reasoning. I'm just saying, like, I I don't think that that. I think that if you gave me the opportunity, here's the thing. I'm talking turkey strategy. If you gave me the opportunity to know what tree he was in, to know where he's roosted up, I would rather know and not do anything about it than to have an idea where he might be coming, probably quietly at night, and try to exploit his coming into that. I would rather just know that he was there and going in the morning anyway. It just isn't fail-safe. It's not a fail-safe turkey way. What, Doug? God, I can't even breathe now. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, let me finish my, my um, little evolution of Wisconsin turkey hunting. Please. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, so we went from noon. Okay. So, so for many Keep years, back up. I lost track of what you were saying. So, so for, well, that's okay. So for many years, we had this noon closure. We could hunt from what basically dawn till, till noon. Then and you it, feel they borrowed it from uh, someone? They other. borrowed it from Missouri. That's, it kind of explained it to us when they were selling us on the whole idea of a turkey season. Well, a decade goes by or so. I can't remember the exact date. Then we start having these discussions about, um, well, why not extend the season late in the day? We're losing all this opportunity for hunters to go out and hunt these, these great new birds we have. And so eventually we, we compromised because lava just want to just have open the whole day. But we compromised for a number of years at a five o'clock closure. At five o'clock, you had to shut down. And then that went on and the sky didn't fall. So then we talked about it again. And I can't remember again, Doug. It wasn't that long ago. We finally said, open the whole damn day. And then also, instead of having five day periods, run it, run it all right back to back. And the season opens on Wednesday, goes all the way to Tuesday and step because it used to be originally five days. It'd be a Wednesday through Sunday. You know, and then give them a and couple you boys days are off. killing 50,000 turkeys yeah. a year. Yeah. And, yeah. and actually, not the population kind of stabilized, found its, its um, it, you know, found its level. Yeah. You know, we're, we're shooting less now than we were back in the days when we had, you know, this five-day season, I think. Or at least it's not, not that long ago, wasn't that? It's, it's so much about turkeys and how, how smart they are about being hunted, their actual numbers. It's not about so many, how many hours in a day we get to hunt. And to your point about uh, roosting, we've been hunting them now all day until sunset for a number of years, and the population hasn't collapsed. You know, yeah. so... And I've, I've tried that where I've, they, I saw him come off the roost in the morning, heard him come off the roost, and I go back in there in the evening and sit down in that area. Either they picked me off or whatever, but I never have gotten that opportunity where I could shoot that gobbler coming back through the, the spring woods. It never happened. Still hasn't. So hmm. I don't know. Have you? Yeah. I mean, uh, we've got roosting areas like where we got the, 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 the birds this past year. That's traditionally there. Now, again, it's not that tree, but there's yeah. a whole sort of, you know, a couple of different points and you're going to be out in there. So there's going to be turkeys there in the afternoon, mm -hmm. just like there's going to be deer there in the afternoon because it's just that kind of place. So, um, yeah, of course it's not fail safe. So I agree with you. If, if what you're going to see, if we do wind up having problems with turkeys, what you're going to see, I think before you see any adjustments in that area, you're going to see adjustments in fall seasons. Sure. Yeah. Fall seasons are like when you want to get serious, when you go like, oh man, we got a turkey problem or a potential turkey problem, that's where you're going to see the trimmings coming from. Is fall seasons that are hen hunts. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, in Montana, in one of the, I think it's region two for turkeys this spring, you can kill two hens, I believe. There might be one hen in the spring. For and fall one hunts. No. 
they added one, they added a hen to the spring. So obviously oh, that's yeah. saying that there's like, they've got some, and it's, I think it's a place where there's a lot of private land and they're just overrun with they turkeys. Too many turkeys. Yeah. And they're, they're really trying to knock back the numbers. Well, a thing to keep in mind in a place like Montana is turkeys aren't native there. Right. So there are a lot of areas in Montana that have turkeys that would not, because winters are so severe that have turkeys that would not have turkeys if it wasn't for turkeys being able to exploit cattle operations. Hmm. I used to hunt area in basically the southeast quadrant of the state, and it's a lot of remote areas, and turkeys are just, by May, there's turkeys dispersed everywhere. But those turkeys congregate in, in groupings of hundreds where cattle are being overwintered because wow. they come in and pick grain out of the shit graining operation mm-hmm. and if you removed those you would altogether lose or, or like virtually lose the population so i think in those places because we're always having this conversation people are like oh like blank is overpopulated or this species is overpopulated and you always have to bring up like well by whose measure mm-hmm. right like who yeah. regards them and oftentimes right. you'll find that by whose measure winds up being an agricultural interest so yeah if you got a non-native population of birds that are showing up on some guy's farm and 400 of them show up in November and they're going to stick around till April. He might be like, by my measure, <laughs> yeah. since I'm bearing, since I'm solely bearing the brunt of this all winter, by my measure, you boys got to shoot some of these hens. Cause that's when you start trimming into population. Yeah. And I think our fall turkey season basically just runs now. We, we never get, Oh yeah, it's you know, long. It's, it's just just never been much interest. I mean, I was going to ask you: do, do you have any idea what the numbers are of turkeys killed in the fall compared to the spring? I bet it's uh, minuscule. I, 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 I haven't looked. Yeah, it, the only guy I know that's really into it was a friend of mine from from back home from school. He's really into it because he raises he raises turkey dogs. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, and so I was going to say that. And you re, in the tenth legion, he talks about this as well. Hmm. Um. Colonel Tom Kelly discusses this in the 10th Legion, that a fall hunting strategy. Well, I'm not telling you boys this. I'm telling the listeners. How you're generally hunting turkeys, unless you're bushwhacking turkeys, in the spring what you're doing is you're, you're exploiting the fact that they're in their breeding cycle, and you are going out and making the sound of a female in order to lure in the male. Where it gets hard is in turkey land, how things generally work with turkeys, is that the male gobbles and, and does his deal and struts and displays and females come to the male. What you're trying to do is be so enticing that you kind of undo that and cause the male to come to the female. You're trying to like generate some frustration on his part. And he's like, what is her problem? As Will Primo says, I'm going to go show her just how pretty I am. And he comes <laughs> in and, and, and you kill him. In the fall, you can't, you're not doing that because the hens don't care about you know, you're not, you're not going to draw in gobblers by making hen sounds. They don't care. They're not breeding them. So the trick is, is to disperse a flock because then they need to locate each other. But a human isn't fast enough to disperse a flock. Like a human, generally, if you go tearing after a flock of turkeys, they're so fast and wary that way before you get there, they're just going to run off as a group and not lose track of each other. But a dog is low to the ground and stealthy and so fast 
that he can get in amongst the flock and spook the shit out of them and send them going off in all manner directions. At which point you set up and start doing like a, basically a herding call that the hens make as they're trying to regroup. And they're just out there going, wee, 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 and other little noises. And they come back together and you call them in and take a poke at them. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl 
dogs. And here's one of those buddies, Max. Not the dog, but the buddy. I've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states, U.S. and Canada. Different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees, and it just doesn't stop working. I'm a fan for life. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. We got lucky once and shot two gobblers out of a flock that we had basically kind of called in, but also we're just in the right spot where the flock was, you know, moving down a ridge towards us. And the shooting of the two birds dispersed the flock. And then we're sitting around, you know, Jack John and high fiving and all excited. And then they, the same thing happened. So we had dispersed the flock. And all of a sudden you can hear hens on both Is sides right? calling. Mm-hmm. What were they doing? Wee, wee, wee. They, it, was, it was everything. It was kind of the cacophony. Yeah. Now I got a buddy who used to, when he kicked up a group of huns, he wouldn't shoot. If he kicked up a group of huns, he would kind of like look, because the huns will split. You know, they're like, one in this direction, three in that direction, two in that direction. He would kind of look at like, after they all landed, he'd sort of pick like what would be the middle and go in and just with his mouth, make a hun noise and pull huns back into him. Wow. Just for funsies, but also as hun. Same thing. What I'm getting at is this guy likes to fall turkey hunt because he likes those damn dogs. Yeah. Raises, breeds, and sells the dog whose specialty is busting up turkeys. There's a guy over in East Central Wisconsin that does the, the, tur- the turkey dogs, and he gets his dogs from um, someplace, Virginia. I guess it was, it was a... I, I think one of the fun things about people with hunting dogs is just how into it they get. And this guy drives all the way to Virginia to get that one breed of dog, which I forget the, the breed now because I'm not a dog person. A turkey-busting dog. Yeah, turkey-busting dog. And, and then and he, he's, um, John Freeze is his name, F-R-E-I-S, I think. And he's such a, he loves that sport so much that he'll actually take anyone that calls him along. A guy, a guy wrote to me the other day, said he looked up this guy after reading my article, called him up, found his name in the phone book or whatever, and John invited him up from Chicago, I think. Huh. Took him hunting. Showed him a good time, and of course, the day I went, I was sick. And Did they shoot could, some hens? I think he got one. I think yeah. he got one, yeah. But yeah, the hen, hens are legal games, so. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I want to clarify. I do not have any problem whatsoever with fall turkey hunts, yeah. so long as the stable, that, 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 it's, you know, that you have a good stable population yeah. of birds that, that hunters agree is a good stable population yeah. of birds. Yeah. But in hunting, um, Sort of traditional use patterns are very important and in, in management and very important how we make our laws. Mm-hmm. And I, if it had to come down and we had to pick spring or fall, I'm always going to go with spring. Oh, oh, mm-hmm. I think most turkey, turkey hunting, it's, they don't call it spring thunder. It's spring thunder, right? They don't right. call that for no reason. It's right. not fall thunder. It's spring thunder. Turkeys. Yep. And I just feel like if someone's going to have to get trimmed out, if in fact, oh, definitely. if we do see lowering turkey numbers and someone's got to get trimmed out, I'm sorry, but I'm going to vote for it being the other guy. Yeah, and my guess would be that you won't see that happening as long as our hunting seasons are dominated by deer hunters. The fall hunt for deer hunting and bow hunting is always going to be so popular that that interest in turkey hunting is always going to be secondary. Plus, you have waterfowling going on. So I just don't, I don't think we've ever seen any, any evidence in Wisconsin anyway, in most states I'm aware of that 
has any problem with fall turkey hunting being a, a detriment to the population. Yeah. It's just irrelevant, basically. Good, good recreation. Like, like, the, like the take isn't substantial. No, no. It's almost like it's uh, uh, coincidental to other kind of hunting. Yeah. Incidental. Incident. Well, okay. Uh, it's like Tyson sitting, sitting in a tree with a 410 shooting squirrels with his bow. It's the same kind of thing. I don't understand. He, he deer hunts with a 410. He shoots squirrels with his 410. While bow hunting for deer? Yeah. And has actually killed deer that way. Hmm. Good for him. So, and he used to always say, yeah, I'm going to see if I can get a turkey that way too. So, I kind of killed a turkey off his land, I think. No, it was on ours. Oh, it was on the Duran yeah, farm? It was right on the fence line there, though. But that's where he actually did, where he actually shot squirrels and then shot a buck. I didn't know he was a squirrel hunter. Yeah, well, not 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 <laughs> Kevin Murphy level. That's he doesn't, like, go to work with the tails hanging off his... <laughs> <laughs> hanging off his jacket and whatnot. Um, in the fall of 2016, uh, in the state of Wisconsin, the hunt, turkey hunters killed almost 5,000 turkeys. Wow. Yeah. How many did they kill in the spring? 50. Yeah, roughly. Yeah, They killed 5,000 in the fall. Does it say the hen time breakdown? Uh, I didn't, that was just the abstract I just breezed through, so I didn't get down to the see it probably does. numbers. Pat, I see you're uh, running a, a Green Bay Packers turtleneck yeah, under yeah. your shirt for, for your benefit. Cause oh, you love. Can I oh. make a quick correction though? I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong about the uh, the the female hen harvest in Montana in the spring. It was all they increased the numbers dramatically. It's like four, but it's all fall. So there's no no hen harvest in the spring. Good because come on, yeah, come on. Uh, a buddy of mine, Tommy Edson. Um. You know, he, he's a little bit baffled by – not. he likes sports. He likes college sports. He doesn't like pro sports. But in Washington State, they just did the fishing regs. Huh. I can't remember if it was the hunting regs or the fishing regs, but they did it in the Seahawks colors. He texts the cover to me, and he's like, is nothing sacred? <laughs> <laughs> Pat Durkin. Do you want to hear the breakdown real quick? Oh, I was just just going to close her out, but go ahead. It's it's roughly 50-50. Fall. Yeah, for fall, 50-50 females to males. Huh. Hmm. Huh. And adult females, surprisingly, uh, made up 35% of the total harvest. Juvenile hens, 18. Gobblers, 35. Jakes, 12. Hmm. Yeah. So it's really incidental. Pat, see so you're running a Green Bay Packers notebook. <laughs> I get that too. Yeah. If you had to pick, if 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 you had to pick, and someone said you can hunt the rest of your life or watch the Packers the rest of your life, what would you pick? Hunting. Not, not even close. Good. Yeah. Good. I, I actually missed quite a few games in the fall. Why don't you have a hunting turtleneck? Yanni hasn't <laughs> given me one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of my comments on on the Packers, Steve. Please, um, this will be. This yeah. is going to count as your concluding thought. <laughs> oh, forget that then. <laughs> I, oh, I, no. I came up with a concluding thought. I got. You know, what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you mine. Okay. So now you have right. two concluding thoughts. <laughs> okay. Um, I've always, I've told my kids. I've told my wife. I've told close friends. Getting back to your whole stuff about funerals. 
this is the Packers part? This is the Packers stuff. Okay. If the day, when the day comes that I die, if I haven't done it. If? And it will. And it will. <laughs> I mean, and, and they're the ones that have to take care of me, I guess I should say. When that day comes and they come to write my obituary, if I haven't done enough in my life to fill that obituary with substantial stuff, if they write in there, he was a, he was a diehard Packer fan, I'll be pissed. Oh, because I'll think you, that that's what I accomplish in life is anyone can be a Packer fan. So you want to live a life so full yeah. that when one fills up X column inches of space, they do not have to get down exactly. to that there, part of it. There won't be no, no filling of this. It'll be you like, know? and the next thing he'll say is, he had two cats. He survived by, <laughs> survived by his fluffy and mittens. Survived by two no, cats. When, when I see it. And everybody will know. It's they so, were going to write he was a diehard Packers fan. <laughs> <laughs> when I see that in people's obituaries, I always feel like, God, that's the best you can come up with for your, your good old dad. He was a Packer fan. He's a Badger fan. Come on. Yeah, so, I'm with you. I'm tracking. So, so that, that, that was the one concluding thought. So that's my instructions to my kids. That's the one I gave you. Now give me your yeah. one. <laughs> the, the one I, I, wanted, I wanted, I actually did thought this last week. I was down at the Southeast Deer Study Group meeting. It's down, it was in Nashville this year. And I thought of you guys because they only study deer of the southeast, or it's like in the southeast. But they it's, study it's, held, all. it's held in the southeast, and most of the research they do is 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 from the southeastern universities and southeastern um, well, operations that have like hunting clubs on their property, and okay. they actually bring, do some research on it. And typically, what it is, it's agency people, um, agency researchers. There could be agencies from the federal government, state government. Um, then also the university and their um, graduate students and their doctoral students come in and give their research on deer, and they that also, sounds pretty good. It's it's to me. I've been I've been going. I was on twenty eighth Street year. Gone to it, mm. and well, you gone for twenty eight years. Yeah, I started in nineteen ninety one. Going to this. I'll point out that Pat has more stuffed deer in his house than he's gone to that convention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I added another one this past year, but or an elk anyway. Um, so. One of the things they've been studying a lot in the in the southeast, though, because it's a um, a growing population still, is uh, I'll say the word two different ways. You know, coyote the way I pronounce it, and coyotes the way mm-hmm. Doug and you guys pronounce it. Coyote, coyote. Yeah. No, I call them coyotes. Yeah, and if you really hate them, and I don't hate them, but guys that do hate them, I find call them coyotes. <laughs> the the um the first thing I thought about you guys because most of those I know most of the university researchers pronounce it coyote. Oh, come on. I'm not really? kidding you. I'm not kidding you. That's, well, you know, the, that's, you know, the, you know you. the Ranella Maxim on this. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that they found Anyone who's the, killed one they says failed coyote. It. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so I thought, well, there goes Steve's theory because these guys, a lot of them are, are trappers and they, they do a lot of research. And they still say coyote. Coyote, yeah. But um, I'll well, never switch. You don't have to, Steve. But, but continue. I'm messing yeah. your story up. So there you are. The 28th year you've gone down. Okay. So one of, one of the takeaways, one of the coolest papers I thought they, they presented was on, was on coyotes. And this guy named John Kilgo, he's a researcher from South Carolina. He, you guys know the, the, the typical theory on coyote um, of why they can repopulate so quickly that the more you hammer them, the more they, they pop up. Sure. This is based on research from the West, basically that they studied the, re- the researchers looked at coyotes out West and said, the more you shoot these things, the more they bounce back. So it's, it's a futile, a, a fool's Aaron to try to wipe out coyotes. But can, can I can I add something okay. there? Go ahead. It's I hear show. this all the time. I, I hear and, I, and and it's I don't have a hard time. Like that's easy to imagine. I think it's I think it's 
from what I've looked at, it's like, sure, that's, that's true. If that was the case, then I would think that really pro-coyote people would want hunters to hammer coyotes because it would make more coyotes. I like that argument, yeah. But they don't. They don't. They use it as a way to say, I like coyotes. I want more coyotes. You shouldn't shoot coyotes because shooting coyotes makes more coyotes. Right. And you wind up in this weird sort of rhetorical yeah. land. Yeah. Well, you made that point in one of your podcasts a while back. Oh, really? That, yeah. No, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a point worth repeating because I think it's, it's, a, it's a great point. And so, but what was fascinating about John, John Kilgore's research, I thought was that, so that's the common thought that based on Western research, that the more coyotes you shoot, the more they'll generate. They have a mechanism that somehow they trigger this compensatory, um, or what do they call it? Compensatory mortality, whatever. Anyway, John, John's group went out in like over a two or three year period, trapped 235 coyotes, started checking to see, are there, is there evidence of boosted, boosting the population through reproduction? What they found was that no, there's no compensatory reproduction taking place here. What's happening is the more you, the more you whack this one area, the more they come flooding in from the exterior areas. So unless you can have this huge geographic area where you're just hammering the hell out of these coyotes, they just keep coming back. And so his concluding thought was, it's, it's, it's futile. We've got to learn to live with these coyotes. Yeah, they'll perhaps adjust deer quotas at some point, but um, that you're not going to ever slow down this, this animal. They're going to keep coming back, bouncing back. So they, they didn't find the compensatory yeah. um, thing that they had out west. But, I, but, but, but here's the thing, though. Not the thing, but a thing to consider, and I mm-hmm. think that, that reflects that research, is we, we discussed this before, where they're doing, oh, th- there's, there's an area in Colorado where they're, they're, they're not seeing good recruitment on mule deer, and they're, right. and they're worried about an isolated mule deer herd mm-hmm. in Colorado. And what they're trying to do is slow down the predation loss of fawns. So in the old days, you might have gone in and tried to do a lot of predator removal work, just generally throughout the year, try to do predator removal work. But what they found is, what thing they were going to try was instead of doing it that way, where you're like removing predators in October, say, in hopes of having a good fawn crop in May, is that you would try to do it in a very targeted way that was removing the predator load however temporarily removing the predator load at a precise moment Hmm. when you want it down because of that thing you're saying interesting you do all the work in october like oh yeah we you know we killed four lions out of this basin Uh Uh, we're hoping to see a bunch of fawn recruitment but in that time it's just been backfilled yeah so to try to work in and go like to 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 come in and do it commensurate or not you know at the same time in order to try to alleviate the predator load. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Isn't that taking that idea of like um, you were explaining when we were in Alaska about how caribou all drop their fawns uh, or their calves? I mean, in a short period of time to sort of overload the their, overload the predators. yeah predator swamping. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thinking that if you were to trickle it out over two months, you're going to lose them all. Yeah. But if they all hit the ground on the same day, and they're vulnerable for how many ever hours or days afterward you're gonna have some survival yeah and typically you know it makes sense what you're talking about because you know the other thing the researchers always show is that basically those fawns make it two or three months 
they're not at a point where they can outrun, you know, the different predators and, you know, have a decent chance of surviving. It's that those first couple of weeks, they really get hammered by, you know, whether it's bears or coyotes, whatever's you know, in the area that's a, the big predator. But, you know, but then there's areas like in Wisconsin and most of the northeastern part of the country where we've had these two animals, coyotes and whitetails, living side by side for at least in modern era, at least a century now, and they're just really not having much impact on them. Yeah, I like I agree with the assessment that there's just that you're going to have to. I mean, coyotes are coyotes. Jeez. Coyotes are expanding their range, right? Yep. More people are going to have to live with them, and what it would take to get rid of them is what things that we've tried in the past yeah. with, without great effect, but with tremendous um, unintended consequences, which is mm. that you'd go back into playing the poison game, mm. which yeah, is devastating fly. to yeah. so many species that I think he's right. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that, uh, I don't think that it would that someone would look at all that and think that using predator control, having that be part of your toolkit, and using research to learn how to use it more effectively. I think that it's going to remain a good management tool um, as long as it's stays socially acceptable. And, and I would be yeah. like, I would, you know, I'd be very disappointed if we at some point decided that that it wasn't something we're going to use because at times it can be very effective in recovering and stabilizing populations. Yeah. And the thing that I always find fascinating when I, you know, work on this kind of stuff is the guys who will have a coyote contest, which can be controversial. Yeah. And the justification they'll quick jump to is we uh, rock these coyotes so that the deer have a chance to live around this area. And I think, uh, yeah, that's, you might as well just worry about how many how many coyotes being sh- uh, killed on the on the highway then, because you know that's just most nothing. Yeah. So let's just. I, well, guess, I, I guess my point is let's let's argue these things on the fact that you're having fun, you're not harming anything. Uh, except make, for the coyotes. Well. <laughs> well, yeah, but that, but, but 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 you're but, oversimplifying. But, 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 go, but the, go pelt, look at, the pelts too are, are worthwhile. I don't see why you have to apologize for killing a fur bearer and, and taking the pelt. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, well, yeah, you can. Go look at what they can do with caribou herds by doing wolf work in Alaska. Mm-hmm. It's not like there are times when it's oh, really effective. I, I agree. Go read up on the history yeah. of the forty mile herd. Yeah, yeah. Well, no one's saying that predators don't have an impact. I've never tried to make that claim, but I, I guess I'm saying the case in coyote. It's hard to say that they're really um, that they are causing problems in some areas. But what can you actually do to stop it? You know, you're not going to stop that coyote. Eventually, they'll probably find a way around that one too. Yeah. You know, so that, that's all I'm saying. Huh. Doug? I noticed that we both said coyote rather than coyote. Well, just because, you know, you want to be Well, he kept like, saying coyote, man, man. so it was in my head. I, I, I quit hunting. Well, I never hunted him. It was incidental shooting the occasional coyote. Coyote. Um, but, uh, and now I'm welcoming him as a part of the... Uh, the Duran herd, herd the Duran, control, the Duran landscape. <laughs> well, yeah, it's. I mean, it's, they're just out there trying to make a living too. It's really interesting to me out walking around in the winter time when you can follow and 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 watch how they sort of hunt. They're real good moochers. They have a real their pattern, like three or you know a group of them, and you watch their their trails, and it's like they're hunting the same way 
they're either learning from me or I'm learning from them. Yeah. I haven't figured out which one yet. Many, many, many years ago, we did a mooch. And uh, we mooched two coyotes past me. Yep. yep. Uh, yeah, I don't have, I, I don't have, like, when I see one, I don't, um, when I see one, I, I don't even, like, doesn't even, I, don't, I have no thought in my head about uh, taking a poke at it. They're just not that tasty. No. The last one I killed, we ate. It just wasn't worth it to me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I sold some when I was younger. And fur prices were better. Sold them to the taxidermy trade. Mm. Um, before This was before they exploded in numbers. And now, yeah, when I see one, it's just like not even like a, like there's, there's no part of me that's like, oh man, I want to get that thing. Yeah, I'm, fa- I'm fascinated just, by guys just that very, do like, it. Very personally, it just like doesn't yeah. click. Yeah, I mean, I'll actually watch um, segments of shows once in a while where they're hunting coyote out, out west or someplace or... I, I stumbled onto a, a, a hunt recently near Lodi where guys were out in their trucks with their, their yeah. hounds and getting ready to do, do a hunt. And I was, if I hadn't been so pressed for time, I would have stopped and tagged along because I thought, I think it's kind of a fascinating process. Oh, yeah, that is for sure. Yeah. But it's like the same thing. I don't watch the Packers, but I don't think that it's bad to watch the Packers. Right. I just have no <laughs> desire to watch the Packers. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think you made it clear over the years that you just have no interest in that. <laughs> yeah. It's not like I'm not like making a statement about the morality of Packer watching. <laughs> right. Yanni, you got any concluders? Hmm. I didn't know it was that time already. You ready to be done, huh? Got no, no other topics for me? No, I feel like I no. I mean, I feel like I just have that feeling like. Well, we have this this fellow uh as my uh concluding thought, I'm gonna uh Greg W wrote in to uh Say that uh, speaking of the meat tree episode, that really what really stood out to him uh, was everyone's perception of the event in hindsight. And he was surprised to hear me say that I felt a little guilty and regretful towards the experience, which that's not how I would have described my reaction to it. But, um, yeah, he's talking about a bear attack incident. The, yeah, the bear attack. If you haven't listened to it, go listen to episodes 86 and 87 titled the meat tree part one and two and uh and steve you felt uh grateful for the newfound wisdom and uh i just want to you know follow up to him and say that i do feel grateful for that wisdom you know that we obviously i'm gonna my uh tactics now going into bear country are much better educated you know and what we're gonna do when we're out there right yeah but i think that he was saying what he was saying is that you felt like a level of responsibility and felt that if something bad had happened, it would have been in some ways on your shoulders. Yeah. Well, there was that. And I still feel that way, but I think he was maybe talking, Being in a leadership talking about role. how at the end you and Garrett were like, glad that happened. Yeah. That was awesome. And I was kind of like, yeah, I could maybe do without it, you know? Okay. Yeah. And he wants to know if you've changed. Yeah, he wanted to know if I if my feelings had changed about it. Like, okay, so if you could snap a, a wave of magic wand. And have it had not happened, would you wave the wand? Probably not now. You wouldn't. But again, the there there is value in the experience, right? But at the time, I just felt like it was it was so intense and it could have gone so awry that that was making me make the call of like, you know what? I was rather it had not had happened, you know, hmm. thinking that maybe, but if, if it's all going to play out the same way and we all walk out of there and get to just talk about it, then sure. 
Why not have a good story? Yeah. No, Dirt Myth had been carried off and killed. Yes. And you said, would you wave the magic wand? Of course. I'd be like, I'll wave it. I'll wave it for old Dirt. <laughs> but Dirt was, uh, when, a couple of weeks before when we were up there, he had the encounter with that grizzly sow who came down over the hill and he was brushing his teeth. Yeah. And when we were sitting around talking about it later, he goes, well, I think it'd be kind of cool if I get a scar from a grizzly bear. Careful what you wish for. Dude, we're magnets for them, man. Just lurking around. Um, so you would not wave the magic wand. Do you feel like our luck is running thinner I now? think it got thick now. You think it got thick? I think that that made I, was just, I think it was getting thin, 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 thin. And then that happened. And now it's gotten thick, 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 thick. Like, let's say you, let's say you were all of a sudden in a plane rack. Right, yeah. all of a sudden, a small plane. The plane crashes, and we all walk away. What are the odds? I wouldn't think that we're going to be in another plane crash. Right. And the book Dispatch is by Michael Hare, which is his. Uh, he covered the he, he covered the Viet. He was a journalist that covered the Vietnam War, then came home and wrote a book about Vietnam called Dispatches. And he meets a kid in the book. He meets a kid from Miles City, and every day, or not every day, but whenever he gets a list of fatalities in the in the military publication. He's always looking in there, hoping to see someone from Miles City on the list. And Michael Hare goes, well, why do you want to see someone from Miles City on the list? He goes, because what are the chances <laughs> two guys from Miles City are going to get killed in this war? Huh. So I feel like that. Like if you are in a plane, if we're in a plane crash, I'd be like, well, I'm glad everyone lived because that was our crash. Mm-hmm. We're not going to have another crash. And you feel that way that we've had like our like I think very, things, very close. I think things real were going charge. in that direction. I feel like things were going in that direction, and now they went in that direction, and now they will walk away. I don't think that we're still on the slope. Mm-hmm. I think that that was the valley floor. I don't know why. That's just my feeling. I feel like it was the. This sounds like something you or your old man would say, but I, <laughs> I feel like that was the valley floor from which we will now climb out. Right. Hmm. Partially because our, our again our tactics and our and the way we go about in that country might change. A little no, bit. it's more. A it's not. It's it. not just based on logic. It's ba- based on just the way it felt. Because other things, other encounters, I feel like it didn't. Other encounters, I feel like there were unspoken words between us and the bear. Or like, you know, but this felt like just hitting the valley floor. It felt like okay. That's where that was headed. Now, I expect quietness. Based on nothing. Based yeah. on nothing. What brought that up is I was reading that uh, story about that, the Arctic explorer, mm-hmm. Worsley, that I was telling you about. Antarctic explorer. Antarctic, sorry. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that every time they dropped a foot into a crevasse, which sometimes can be you know, a couple of inches a foot wide and, and that same depth, or it can be, you know, Endless. giant multiples of that, right? To, and it can be your death down there. But that every time they, you punch a foot through, you're just like, man, the, you know, you're just getting closer and closer and closer, and your luck is just getting thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. Yeah, I like that. But let's say you fell into one and caught yourself and climbed out. Would you feel like, whew. Okay, yeah. Like now what are the chances of <laughs> falling into a big one again? Pretty high, or, or but you're saying it might be less. So you feel like it just it just depends on perception. Yeah, I hear you. This can't be measured. No. Aren't you afraid by even voicing this idea that you bottomed out and going back up that you're 
tempting fate? <laughs> no. no. No, only because bears don't listen. They're not listening right yeah. now. They're they're out in the woods just plotting. Yeah. But they don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I don't know why I feel that way. It doesn't make any sense. It's just how I feel. Mm-hmm. It's almost irresponsible for me to share my thoughts on it. It makes so little sense. It just seems like an odds thing. You know, that the odds are you won the lottery and now you're not going to win it again. Or you lost the lottery in that case. And now yeah, you're gonna... do dudes who... <laughs> and, yeah. Do dudes who play the, the, the tax on stupidity and win... Dude, are they like are they like are they like uh man no point in buying another one of them tickets <laughs> no, they're going they're going out and spending half of their winnings to buy more all right oh. Doug, did, I, did i give you a, you took one i'm i'm good <laughs> I, I feel like i'm back in good graces here so i'm gonna you know i'm just gonna sit quietly for the rest of the time all right thanks for joining us Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting into go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear.